Thank you. Uh, can you hear me? I never know on these Zoom things. Okay. My name is Mike Shane. I'm an alcoholic. Um, it's good to be here. Uh, my sobriety date is April Fool's Day, 1975. Um, you know, it's uh, the Christmas week, and uh, I want to wish everybody a happy, uh, a Merry Christmas and, um, and all that. But I will tell you that when I was new and Josh and I were talking a little bit before I, uh, before the meeting. Uh, Christmas was very difficult for me for a long time. Um, you know, I came into Alcoholics Anonymous and I had lost absolutely everything and uh, I couldn't see my daughter. And, and I remember <clears throat> I was sober, what, April to December. And, um, you know, I really got into a lot of self-pity around the holidays. And, and I, back in those days, I was much more caught up in what I don't have than what I do have, which is what I, where I like to stay today. And uh, it was very difficult for me. And, and my sponsor, the guy who became my sponsor, and I'll talk a little bit about him, it, uh, was a guy named Big Frank. And he was a pretty straightforward kind of character. He was a real... Uh, um, he was always very kind to me. He was always very nice to me. And I think it was because I came into AA so beat up and off the streets. And, but he said, what you're going to do is you're going to meet me down here at 1311 York Street Club at 10 o'clock in the morning. We're going to go down to the Salvation Army and feed people. Then we're going to come back here and feed people. And then you're going to come over to my house and we're going to feed each other. And you know, what he did for me was he got me out of myself and he showed me the main principle of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is go out and help somebody. And uh, uh, of course, when I was new, I really didn't uh, think that way. You know, I was pretty screwed up. But <clears throat> my story is uh, uh, I was born in Madison, Wisconsin, way up north. And uh, I like to say I was born into a family where alcohol was one of the four basic food groups and, you know, everybody drank and that's what it was. And I, I honestly thought Saturday nights was about all your relatives come over. Everybody gets drunk. Somebody gets in a fight with their wife and, and uh, sometimes there's a fist fight and sometimes there's not. And, and uh, uncle Charlie always passed out at the kitchen table. And I thought that's just what, people did. I thought that's how people live because that's all I knew. You know, I had an alcoholic dad and I had a mother that I call her the greatest Al-Anon because you could have World War III in her living room the night before and she'd wake up in the, the next morning and just act like nothing ever happened, you know, and, and uh, that's what I came from. And, and uh, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was craziness, you know, and I, I talk about this, uh, you know, there's this whole crew of us, and I guess some of you know some of them, Gary Brown, I've known since I came into the program, and uh, my best friend is a guy up here named Bob Olson, and, and Don Pritz, and all these guys, we all hung out together, and, and we did a lot of talking about things, but one of the things that Bob and I talk about is when you grow up in a violent alcoholic home, you're always looking over your shoulder, you know, and and you, you get to this point where you do about anything you can to survive. And, and that's where I was. 
And, you know, I was in this alcoholic home and I remember I was in Madison, Wisconsin. It was February and I went to my very first junior high school dance. And back in those days, because I'm an old guy, I'm sure it's all different now. But uh, uh, in those days, you went to these junior high school dances and the girls all stayed on one side of the room and the guys stayed on the other side of the room. <laughs> and this kid came up to me and he said, hey, I stole a pint of whiskey from my dad's liquor cabinet. Would you want to go out back and, and drink it? And I said, sure. <clears throat> and I was a shy kid. You know, you hear an Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, you never felt like you belonged. And that, that was true for me. I, I was always sort of the outsider, but I was a jock and I was very good at athlete, athletics. So I was accepted for that. You know, the people wanted me to be around so because I was on the football teams and, and I was on the basketball teams and the baseball teams. <clears throat> and, uh, and so anyway, we went out back and I'm telling you, February in Wisconsin can be pretty chilly. And um, we're out back and he took one swig out of there and I took a swig out of it and he took another swig out of it and I drank the rest of it. And I will tell you that <clears throat> from the get-go, I had lost the power to stop drinking once I put a drink in my mouth. And uh, uh, that night, I was told, I went into a blackout my very first time. I was told I went back into that junior high school dance, asked all the pretty girls to dance. I was told I kissed the prettiest girl in the place. And they found me at two o'clock in the morning on a football field in, in Madison, Wisconsin, totally passed out. <clears throat> and that was the start of my drinking. And I remember I went home, excuse me, I got a little frog in my throat here, but <clears throat> excuse me, I went home and I got in trouble. And I remember laying in bed and hurting like you couldn't believe going, when's the next time I get to go do this, you know? And so, because it just made me into something I wasn't. It, it took away all the fear. It took away the loneliness. It took away everything. You know, it gave me that warm, fuzzy feeling and all was right in the world. I actually listened to a fifth step before this meeting today and we were talking about it. And I, we were talking about drunks living to feel secure even after they've been sober for a long time and how we try to arrange life so that we feel good and we feel secure. And I was telling this person, I said, I remember I was in, I, we had just moved to Denver, Colorado from California and I was, I had gotten arrested on some fighting thing and I couldn't pay the rent. And uh, my wife had just uh, gotten pregnant and my world was falling apart. And I remember I had enough money to go buy a bottle and I bought a bottle of some stuff called Four Roses, which I think is the, about the nastiest bourbon you can find. And I started drinking that and halfway through that bottle of bourbon, everything was just wonderful. I didn't have a care in the world. You know, and it, it really showed me something, not until much later, but it really did. Anyway, um, 
you know, I drank all the way through high school and the big book talks about the first step in a funny way. If you read the first paragraph um, in We Agnostics, it talks about losing the power of choice, whether I drink or not. And then it also talks about the physical craving. And I will tell you this, I had the physical craving from the very first time I ever started drinking whiskey. But I really could go all the way through high school and I didn't have to drink, you know? I mean, I could go a month, I could go, I could go a long time if I had a football game to play. I didn't have to worry about it. I didn't go out and get drunk. But once I took that drink, then I lost all control. And when, after I got out of high school and blew a football scholarship because I was drinking too much, uh, <clears throat> the military came after me. And it was in the military in, in 19, well, I went in the, in the service in 1967. And it was in the military that I started to develop this thing about having to get drunk, having to take a drink. I couldn't keep myself away from it. And, you know, it was a very crazy time back then. And there was all these riots going on and, the, and there was just all kinds of craziness in the military. And most of us had gotten drafted and didn't want to be there anyway. But I went overseas and that's where I learned how to mix drugs and booze together in order to get the desired effect. Now, I will tell you with regards to the first step, I'm an alcoholic uh, because that's always what I crave. That's always what I wanted. And I actually, uh, I'll get to this, but I moved to Denver, Colorado about two years before I quit drinking. I sobered up in Denver and I quit doing drugs. I just quit doing drugs two years before I quit drinking. I mean, it was not an issue for me. Um, but my drinking consumption went way, you know, way up. So uh, <clears throat> I got out of the military barely. And uh, there were three of us that had been overseas together. And we decided to go downtown to the uh, this place called Haight-Ashbury. Because <laughs> we were told we could have a real good time down there. So we headed down there. And I will tell you one of my true claim to fames, and I would give anything to have a picture of this, but I went to the Fillmore West. I'd been out of the service for about maybe two weeks. And uh, we went to a place called the Fillmore West and we were all loaded. And there was this guy named Jimi Hendrix on stage. And there was this drunk girl in the audience who decided to get up and sing with him. And I didn't know until after it was all over, that was Janis Joplin. So I will tell you for the old people that that was my one claim to fame was to see those two. And I don't remember most of it. Um, anyway, I, I am not one of those guys that I don't quite know how to say this. I was not one of those guys that had a plan for the future. I didn't go to law school. I didn't use my GI Bill to better myself. I didn't do that. What I did is I got a job in a strip club up in uh, um, North Beach in San Francisco. And I became a bartender. And that's what I did while I was there. And I got into a lot of trouble and I got into a lot of craziness. But 
for me, it was almost like I sort of reveled in it. I really did. I enjoyed the insanity of my life at that point in time. And I really thought that that drinking and, and, and maybe going to jail and getting drunk and getting loaded was just part of the deal. And and that's what I did. And then I got into a lot of trouble with the law. And this woman and I skipped California and came to Denver. And I don't want to spend too much time on my drinking story because I really prefer recovery, to be quite honest with you. But uh, uh, it's important that I qualify. And, you know, I moved to Denver, Colorado, and, and I remember... I remember I, I got a job ten and bar here, and and I remember my the woman I was with who I married uh, got pregnant, and I remember when she told me that she was pregnant, I said I can't be this kind of man anymore. I was I was a lunatic. I was I was out there. I was I was violent. I was uh, insane and. Quite honestly, I didn't care about you. I cared about my next drink and where I was going to get it. And, and that's all I cared about. And I wish I had some morals back then. I, I've talked many times in the past. And I will tell you that these kind of things when, when I'm talking to you somewhere else, I, I miss meeting you. I miss meeting you guys and chatting and getting to know you. But, um, you know, Alcohol took me where it wanted to take me. And that's the first step, folks, is that powerlessness is really different than saying I'm a drunk or I'm an alcoholic. True powerlessness is, is that alcohol is going to take you wherever the hell it wants to take you and you don't have any choice about the matter. Well, to make a long story short, um, <clears throat> after about a year and a half and my daughter, I think at that time was a year old, I was in a crazy alcoholic relationship and and we were living in a house where the utilities hadn't been paid and I call it my drunk house, you know, where the grass grows and the screens are coming off and and it, it was just a disaster and uh, uh, she literally beat me up with a rolling pin, you know, one of those old pine rolling pins that they used to have way back when, maybe they still have them, I really don't know. And I remember laying on the floor in this house and she called her mother and her mother came and got her and she moved in and took my daughter and filed a restraining order against me. And, and to be honest with you, I deserved every bit of it, you know. Um, but I remember laying there going, I don't know what to do. I can't change. I can't stop drinking. And I remember the next day, I went to the hospital and got stitched up and stuff and came back. And I remember the next day, the phone was still working in this house. And back in those days, this was 1974, you didn't know too much about Alcoholics Anonymous. AA was not a cool place to be. It was not a place that was publicized. And nowadays, every TV show has somebody that's in a program, you know, I mean, it's just what Hollywood's done. And I'm going to be, you got to put up with my opinions if I'm going to talk. So I'm going to tell you one of my opinions. 
one of my opinions is, is I hate the way they portray Alcoholics Anonymous and alcoholics. Because in every TV show, and I know it's for dramatic effect, these people are sober for a long time and they hit a, they hit a bad patch in their life and they're at the bar fighting the drink. That has never been my story. Alcoholics Anonymous promises me the freedom from alcohol. What that means is I don't want, I don't drink, plus I don't want to drink. No matter what's going on in my life. You know, Josh says he's a recovered alcoholic. I consider myself a recovered alcoholic because I've done the work and I've lost this craving to drink. Alcohol plays no part in my life. Today, if I'm an asshole, I'm just an asshole. It's not about being an alcoholic, okay? It's just the way it is. And I've been through extremely good times, and I'll get to this later. I've been through some extremely bad times in AA. And since the craving to drink has left me, I have never wanted to pick up a drink. Good times, bad times, you name it. Now, I've wanted to do all kinds of other things, but not drink. And that is God, and that is this fellowship. Anyway, I called Alcoholics Anonymous back then, and there was, <laughs> there was a group called Happy Way, and I said, oh, what a name of a place, you know. So I'll go to Happy Way. If they're happy, I'm happy. And I went to this, this meeting at Happy Way, and I weighed 320 pounds. I hadn't changed clothes in a week. I stunk. I had booze all over me. And I come walking into this AA meeting. And they had these big couches. And I remember I went over and I sat on, a, on this couch. I had never been to AA in my life. I didn't know what AA was. And this guy who was sitting on the other side of the couch got up and moved to a different couch. And I remember sitting in this meeting and I don't remember anything anybody said. I'll be honest with you. Except this woman came up to me and she said, you put the plug in the jug, son, and turned around and walked away. And I remember thinking, if I could put the plug in the jug, what the hell would I be doing here? You know? And I'm going to tell you something else, since you got to put up with my opinions. Actually, you don't. You're in Zoom. You can just, you know, go bye-bye. Um, Groups that do not have a strong message out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous don't know how to carry a message to a real alcoholic. And a real alcoholic will scare the hell out of them. You go to a group that's embedded in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and a real drunk comes in, boy, do they ever know how to treat you. They're just really happy to see you. They'll hold your hand. They'll do all these things. So I kept going back to this meeting. And um, it, it, it didn't carry a message back then. It does today. It's actually a very strong group today because of one guy going in there and carrying a message of 12 steps. And I drank. I drank off and on through the whole time I was going there. How long do I have to go? Do I go to about five to seven or how long do I go? I don't want to go. You can go to right at eight o'clock, Mike. Eight o'clock's good, man. Well, five to seven here, five to eight there. Anyway, um, you know, so Perfect. I was drinking and 
go into meetings and these people would feed me and they were very nice to me. And then finally, after about four or five months of this, this woman came up to me, a different lady, and she said, honey, I, she was much older. Okay. I, see, everybody at this place was old. It was like me. Okay. Now. And, and, you know, they, they were like, um, they were like, honey, we can't help you here. But there's this place down 1311 York Street for people like you. And so to this day, I say I was kicked out of my first AA meeting. But because um, I was, you know, I, I, I just kept getting drunk and showing up at meetings. And I didn't talk. I sat in the corner. And so I went down. I went on a bender. I went on like a three-week bender. And I went down to 1311 York Street at about 10 o'clock in the morning, and I hadn't had a drink that day. And I had been drinking for about three solid weeks. I was basically on the street. I was still living in that same house. I don't know why they didn't come cart me off. There was notices of eviction on, on the front door and everything, but I'm sitting down there and there's hardly anybody there. And this woman puts, sits me down in this big open room down in, in the clubhouse and there's nobody there. And, and she brings me a cup of coffee and I can't get the coffee down and I'm shaking. And uh, this guy comes walking in and he's about six foot nine. He weighs about 360 pounds. He's got a palm oil hanging out of his mouth. And he's got plumber butt. He's got his jeans are just sagging off his rear end. And he looks at me. <laughs> I don't want to talk to anybody, trust me. And he comes sauntering over to me, comes walking over to me. Now, I had been around AA long enough to know that people enjoy speaking to really hurting drunks. It's really not for the new drunk, it's much more for them. So they can walk away and go, oh, but for the grace of God, there go I kind of thing, you know, and pat you on the back and say, keep coming back, which never made any kind of sense to me. And I thought, that's exactly what this guy's gonna do. He's gonna come over, pat me on the back and say, keep coming back. Well, he came over and he sat down at the table I was sitting at and he put his hand on his, on his, up to his chin, and he stared at me. He just stared at me. And I'm going, what is this guy doing? And he looked at me and he said, you're screwed. And he got up and he walked away. And I didn't know what the hell had just happened. Well, back at 1311 York Street, they had a kitchen back in the back of the place. And he, what he did is he went back in the kitchen and he came out with a, with a cup of orange juice and honey and he set it down in front of me. Now, here's what he did. And I still, to this day, 45 years later, say it's one of the best things that ever happened to me, is he took that cup of orange juice and honey and he put a straw in it and he moved it toward me because he knew I could not pick that cup up and get it to my mouth. And by that one act, he showed me that he knew exactly what was happening to me and where I was at. And he showed me that he knew what I was there for 
and what was going on with me. And nobody ever had, you know, just like all of you, I'd been told my whole life how much potential I had and how come I don't live up to it and how could you do this to your mother and wife. And... But nobody knew, nobody knew, you know, I had enough shame for everybody. I cannot stand new uh, people that have been around AA for a long time who meet new people and try to shame them into sobriety. We have enough guilt and, and stuff. Don Pritz used to say, truth without love is cruelty. And I truly believe that. I truly believe you need to tell an alcoholic the truth about their condition, but you need to do it with, with some love and some caring. Anyway, that's what this guy who became my sponsor, Big Frank, did is he talked to me and he took me home with him <laughs> to his apartment and he let me sober up on his couch. And I went into DTs and he'd have his people from his group come over and watch me. And they'd come over and they'd say, Frank, you got to get this guy to detox. And Frank would go, no, sobering up's not supposed to be easy. We're not taking him to no damn hospital. And, and he made me suffer. And after about four or five days of that, he uh, took me back to this house I happened to be in and we got some clothes and some things that I had there and the rest of it was trash. And he, he got me a place to room and he explained the 12 steps to me. And what he did is he 12 stepped me is he went through the big book and he showed me each and every step of the 12 steps and, and told me exactly what I needed to do if I really wanted to get sober. But what he also said is that he said, Mike, if you don't want this, don't waste our time. Now, by doing that, he put the responsibility of my sobriety directly on my shoulders. It wasn't on the AA group shoulders. It wasn't on my sponsor's shoulders. It wasn't on anybody else's shoulders. It was on my shoulders. And I started going to meetings every single day and these guys would walk up to us and there was two of us, a guy just gotten out of prison named Dick, and we'd sit in the corner of the club, and these guys would come over and they'd say, have you eaten yet? And we'd just sort of shake our head, and then they'd come back out and they'd say, there's a meal waiting for you in the kitchen, go get it. But these guys would make sure that we were in meetings. These guys made sure that we had a sponsor. That's when I met Gary Brown and Don Pritz and all those guys. They all, we all congregated down at 1311 York Street. And you see, I didn't like you guys, but I'll tell you what I did have. I knew you had something a lot better than I did. I knew that for an absolute fact. But the idea of getting sober scared the hell out of me. I was 28 years old. I had nothing. I had no job. I had no wife. I had warrants out after me. I had restraining orders against me. And the idea of getting sober, I just couldn't even imagine it. I had literally hit that point where I couldn't imagine drinking anymore, but I also couldn't imagine getting sober. And one of the things that I had kept was a 38 revolver. And Big Frank said to me, he didn't know I had the gun. But Big Frank said to me, he said, look, 
because I had problems with God. I had all this stuff going on. I thought God worked for good people and I was not a good guy, nor did I want to be a good guy. I'll be honest with you. I didn't come in here to be a good guy. I didn't come in here to find God. I came here because I had nowhere else to go. And Frank said to me, he says, Mike, if you'll work the first nine steps, at the end of that, if you want to go back out and drink, go ahead. But you owe it to yourself to do that. And I started to work the steps. We got clear on what an alcoholic was and that I was one and that I had no hope if unless I did something. You see, the first step, folks, doesn't keep you sober. The first step tells you you're just going to drink again. That's all it really tells you. And then he explained to me that I don't have to believe in Christian God. I don't have to believe in anything. I got to believe in something bigger than me. And do I believe that if this worked for other people that are like me, can it work for me? And we took a third step together. And I even told him, I don't even believe in this guy. I've seen too much. I, I, I won't even go into it, but I have seen atrocities that, that there can't be a God. And he said, well, maybe that, that's true. Maybe it isn't. But are you willing to find out? And it was right about this time, the 75 International Convention came to Denver, Colorado. And Bob Olson and Pritz and that whole bunch of us, they drug me out of the club and they took me down there. And one of the speakers was Lois Wilson. So I got to hear her. But another speaker was a guy named Mac Cheater out of Calgary, Canada. I think it was Calgary. It might have been Quebec. Anyway, from Canada. And his group was called the Golden Slippers. And he stood up there and he said this. He said, nobody in our group could stay sober. So we decided to sit down and work the steps together. And when it said to pray, we prayed. When it said to write inventory, we wrote inventory. When it said to fifth step, we did. When it said to make amends, we did. And nobody in our group has gotten drunk since we did that. And he gave me that hope. He gave me that hope that maybe the answer for my problem is in AA, but I had to work the 12 steps. I couldn't be a hang arounder in AA. I couldn't sit around the clubs. I couldn't drink coffee and tell BS stories. I had to actually go and do some work. And that's when we had the step workshop of guys who got together and went through the book. And I'm going through the steps with my sponsor and I'm in the, in the step workshop with Brown and those guys. And, and I'm doing this deal. And, and all of a sudden my life starts to change a little bit. It didn't get good. Let me tell you folks, my first couple of years of sobriety were, was a living hell, but something was changing. And I remember I lost the craving to drink somewhere after I did a fifth step. I remember doing my very first fifth step and, and, and I'm, I came home and I could be, I, I was living in this dingy little buffet apartment and uh, in downtown Denver and <laughs> I came home from my fifth step. And I remember that for the first time, and I can't tell you how many years I just sat there and I didn't, need anything. My mind was quiet for the first time in, in so many years. I used to kid with people 
but it was actually true. I used to say I had 52 conversations going on in two porno movies all at the same time in this brain of mine. And that was the absolute truth. When I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I was, I was totally nuts. I went back to San Francisco and I made amends. And that was huge. I was wanted for some felonies. I turned myself in, I faced them. And to make a long story short, I, they held me for four hours and this detective finally came in. He said, Mike, you went to court. This is all settled. Now, I knew I had never gone to court on these felonies. One of them was assault to a police officer. And he said, it all got dropped down to a misdemeanor and, and you're given a year's probation. I had never gone to court. I had never been back in, the, in San Francisco. Well, I owed one more amend. I, I, I had made my amends to everybody there, but I owed one more amend and that was to the well, they call themselves the Broadway Association. It was the mob, that is who they were. And they owned all these clubs and I had stolen money from them. And I had told my sponsor, I am never gonna make amends to these guys because they hurt you. You don't go back and tell them that you ripped them off. Now, how I ripped them off was no big crime novel. I attended bar for them and I'd steal 50, 100 bucks. I'd do this and that, you know, over a period of time. And I walked out of this police station and there was a payphone, folks. There, there was a time before cell phones. I'm here to tell you, especially you young guys, people. And uh, <laughs> there's this payphone, and I had the number for the head guy at the Broadway Association, and I was going to call it. It was like three, four o'clock in the afternoon. He wasn't going to be there, right? No way. And I was going to go back to Denver and tell my sponsor I had done the best I possibly could. And I called and he answered, he picks up the phone and he answers it. And I remember going over and telling him what I had done. And, and here's where this is important is that as I was standing there making the most scary, it, this was worse than going to prison, trust me. I was making this amend and I had no idea what was going to happen to me. And all of a sudden, I got this peace over me and I knew I was going to walk out of there and I was going to be okay. And it was, and I knew that there was some kind of a power that would take care of me. And that whole thing got resolved and they're the ones that had gotten all the charges taken care of because it would have affected them if I had been taken off on them and everything. But they, they got it handled. And I remember coming back to Denver, Colorado and I'm going, how did I ever do this? How did I ever go back and make amends for all this stuff? And I had this, I, I wrote a, I was on a high for about two weeks and I came back to Colorado and went from there and, and we, you know, uh, I really got involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, amends, I hate to make them to this day, but I will tell you that I have gotten more benefit and other people have gotten benefit from me making amends than I think any other step. Um, one thing about amends is they never happen the way you think they're going to. Uh, 
I went and I made amends to my brother and I really thought he'd invite me back into his life. And he said, stay the hell away from me. I never want to see you again. I made amends to people who I thought would write me off. And they said, God, Mike, it's so good to see that you're sober and you're, you're something different than you were. You know, I, I've never, I've, I, I can't predict what an amends going to look like. So I came back to Colorado and got involved in 10, 11, 12 at my home group. I got a job as a coffee maker and I wouldn't let anybody else make coffee because see, all of a sudden my self-worth is coming back. And, you know, I was there like an hour before the meeting and I'd make the coffee and I'd put the cigarette back then you could smoke in all meetings, you know, and I'd put the ashtrays out. And I remember people would say, you want help with that coffee? No, 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 no. That's my job. I was so proud of how I made coffee. And, and, and that was the beginning for me. That was the beginning for me. I will tell you that I am a proponent of going through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous with a very strong individual who's worked the steps and I do it on a regular basis. Now, why do I do it more than once? I'll tell you why. I used to be a gym rat, but I will tell you that if I go to the gym and do a hard workout, that's not going to keep me in shape for the next five years. Just isn't going to do it. And my ego wants to rebuild and it starts to think I'm right. And it starts to think that I'm on the right side of everything. And pretty soon I'm an obnoxious asshole. And I got to tell you, I've got to go back through the steps on a regular basis because I need to be told and get back to that place again where I quit focusing on me. And I start, I start to focus on how can I be of help to you? How can I be of service to you? You know, I don't know if you've ever read a book called A New Pair of Glasses by Chuck Chamberlain. I never met Chuck, but I met, I've spoke at conventions with Clancy and all those guys. And, and I've listened to about every tape I've ever been able to get about Chuck because I love the guy. And he talks about going to work for free and for fun and, and let God take care of your money. Go out there and be of service. Well, that's the way I choose to live my life today, for free and for fun. My prayer every single morning is, God, show me what I can do for you today. And I go out and do the very best I can each day and leave the result in God's hands. And when I can do that, I'm in great shape. I'm happy. And my wife even likes to be around me. And, you know, it's a wonderful way to live. And then all of a sudden I start getting worried about money or health or whatever. You know, I was supposed to speak at your meeting, what, a month ago? And that nasty little COVID thing caught me and, and I couldn't do it. And um, I got to tell you, I've been through way too much to really be afraid of dying. I, I, death, dying doesn't scare me too much. I've way, I've way outlived any expectation of, of, my, of where I should have died. I should have died so many times. But I will tell you that what scared me was that my wife would be burdened because you hear all these things about older people going in hospitals and being on ventilators for months and this, that, and the other thing. And, and But God got me through that too. Um, 
I go through the steps on a regular basis. I started a group here in Parker, Colorado called the, this is really a great name, and that's Sunday morning, 11 a.m. Parker AA meeting. Uh, <laughs> and I started that group about eight years ago and it really flourishes. Uh, Bob and I go to Happy Way uh, once a week usually and uh, participate in that. Uh, I have a life that is better than anything I could ever dreamt of. It's different than what I would have dreamt, but I will tell you, I can't, I can't even tell you what I have today. Um, and not that I have a lot of money and I have a lot of security and I know this is my home office. So if you see all this office stuff back here, that's, that's why it's just my home office. And this is where I do my business zoom meetings and, and, uh, uh, trust me, I, I didn't go to my office to talk to you. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. It's 17 degrees and blowing at 30 miles an hour here. So if any of you that live down on the Gulf Coast want to invite it, my wife and I down, please do. Uh, but but uh, uh, I have a woman in my life today who's sober a long time and She's my best buddy. And I actually didn't date in AA for years and years and years. I, I didn't want to mix the two. And she was, I did a, I did a, uh, a talk out or step workshop out in California. And then a month later, we did another step workshop out in California. And she was there at that one too. So I tell her that she stalked me. Um, now that's not her story, but she's not talking tonight. So uh <laughs> I get to tell it my way, um, but I have a woman who's my best bud. I'm telling you right now, we talk about everything. There's nothing off the table. We do a once a month, about once a month group conscience where the other person has the right to say absolutely anything without any interruption, and it's a safe place. The same as a group conscience in Alcoholics Anonymous. Where did I learn how to live, folks? I learned how to live by you people showing me how to live a spiritual life. That's how I learned how to live. You hear a lot of this self-esteem talk in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've never met a drunk that has a self-esteem issue. We all think we're the king and queen of England. The problem is nobody else does. You know, so then we run around the poor me's and I'm not good enough. Well, that's just the another side of the ego. That's all it is. So my wife and I have these group consciences and we can talk about anything. And I'm telling you, it has gotten us through all kinds of things. I've had some health stuff with some back surgeries and hip surgeries and, and, and all. And, and I will tell you that daughter that, that I was talking about, I got custody of her when she was 13 years old and she had been raised by an alcoholic mother and she was already into drugs and alcohol. And, and I will tell you, it turned me gray. Um, trying to provide a home for somebody that's already been damaged by this disease. And she got sober. She was sober for, she went to prison, got sober. She was sober for 10 years and she went back out and some years after that, I got an 8 a.m. call that she had overdosed and died. Which is probably one of the toughest things that I've been through in sobriety. But here's back to what I was talking about with regards to alcohol. I never one time thought about taking a drink. 
I went through every other emotion there was, but I never thought about taking a drink. And that's a, that's a blessing from Alcoholics Anonymous. Not everything in my life is going to turn out the way I would hope, but I have a life that, that's better than anything I could have ever predicted. And it's all a result of the truth tellers in AA telling me the truth about me, but then being willing to walk with me to hell and back in order, <clears throat> excuse me, in order to get well. And I really appreciate you inviting me down here. Thank you very much.